Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good. Well, we're going to do a uh, little bit of Oprah and Dr. Phil this morning, okay? I look like Oprah, don't I? So I'll play her part. I'm going to have a friend come up from the life group that my wife and I are involved in named Jacob, Jacob Shaw, and he's going to come up here. But as he does that, let me say thanks to the church body. Um, Some of you would have gotten by email this week a a little bit of a situation my wife and I were in with our oldest daughter, Mackenzie. She's a college student at Indiana University, and she was on a class trip to um, Italy and got real sick and got complicated and couldn't get past Paris and wouldn't let her get on a plane and had her in a hospital. And so all that information coming back to parents, that is not good news. You get a little frightened. So I made a rush trip to Paris. Not the way that I ever wanted to do Paris, but I did it. And we got her home, and she's safe and secure and getting stabilized and resting up and um, got our local doctor involved, so it's a good thing. So thank you for praying. Really appreciate that so much. So Jacob. Jacob, Does that mean I'm Dr. Phil? You, you are Dr. Like Dr. Phil. Phil. Yeah. Yeah, you can okay. be Oprah if you want. I'll be Phil. I, don't know. I think that's a lose-lose. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work it out. But we're talking uh, in this series about how uh, we need to be ourselves. But part of being ourselves means we get to do that in the environments of other people, work, family, neighborhood, and that God would give us opportunities to enter other people's story and possibly change it for his glory. And so I just wanted to get an up close and personal with a guy that I've met through our life group recently and get his story out in front a little bit as a person here in our fellowship and uh, make a little link before we get going on the sermon. So, Jacob, talk a little bit about your background, how you grew up and how faith fit in or didn't fit in. Sure. Um, Again, my name is Jacob Shaw and uh, I was born and raised here in the area. I actually grew up in Oregonia and um, I don't know if you're familiar with where Oregonia is. It's just east of Lebanon down by the Little Miami River. And I had a very unique upbringing. Um, I really kind of had the uh, had the upbringing of like an 80-year-old man right now because I was born in a cabin on the living room floor, delivered by my dad. We were very poor. We didn't have running water until I was about four years old. My dad dug a, dug a spring from the hill and brought it to the house that way, and we had a cistern. And But, um, you know, we didn't realize that we were poor. You know, that's one of the great things, especially of being a kid and being poor. You don't know you're poor. You don't know you you know, what's a PlayStation 3? You know, we don't have any of these things. But um, faith didn't necessarily fit into our family. We weren't um, we weren't a Christian family. My parents believed in God. But, you know, the Bible says that if you believe in a God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And I didn't really understand what church was. We had we had church. We, you know, Easter church, we had Christmas church. And I can remember just going and it was basically just color this picture in Sunday school. You know, I didn't know who the guy, who the little picture I was, I was coloring. Um, I knew there was Jesus, but, you know, faith didn't necessarily fit into our family. Um, but I had a very unique childhood and, um, my parents separated when I was in seventh grade and that's when I, I moved to, uh, into Lebanon. And, um, but I had a very happy childhood, mm-hmm. but faith was not something that, that fit into our family. Okay, good. So now a guy invites you to come up in front of a church and talk about stuff. So it would seem obvious that faith has come into place. You've got a beautiful family, and I know you're trying to apply yourself to walking with God. But tell us how that happened. How did faith intersect your life? Uh, fast forward a few years uh, from uh, you know when I moved to Lebanon. I was 15, and, uh, and she told me not to say this again, but I was dating a girl. She was out of my league. I 
She's my wife up there. That's why I said that. She said, don't embarrass me again. I said, she oh. was hot babe in the she first She was service. a hot babe. Yeah. She was, you know, <laughs> she was 15. We started dating when we were 15, and um, she went to Ridgeville Christian School, and, and she was a Christian. And I, and I, I knew that about her, but again, it didn't really, I, I didn't have any kind of, oh, well, she's a Christian, you know, she believes in God. Hey, so do I. I believe in God. Um, but I went to church with her a couple of times, um, and mainly to do that, it was kind of to win over the parents, you know, because I, I was 11 and heathen. And, uh, but like I said, not like the Mason heathens, you know, you've got, but, uh, no, Jesus. but, um, I went to church a couple of times with her and that was, um, you know, through the summer of, uh, 94. And, uh, my older brother was a basketball player. He was actually a freshman at the university of Toledo at the time and, um, living a typical college life. And, um, you know, he was, you know, into the party and everything like that. And, uh, kind of a wild kid. And, um, he had the opportunity that summer to travel to the Ukraine with a with a um, ministry called Athletes in Action, and um, he went on this ministry. And this, this was late July. He was over for a few weeks, and when he came back, it was like it, it was a completely different person. And I can remember looking at him, going, "What have you done with my brother?" You know, he didn't want to give me wedgies and noogies anymore. He, you know, <laughs> it was something different. He actually he actually wanted to spend time with me. And uh, when he came back, um, before he went back to school, we spent a few days together, and um, I saw the changes in his life, and I, I saw it in him, and I saw these same things that I was seeing in my girlfriend at the time, and, and it was something that was so foreign to me, but yet something that I wanted in my life. I knew that there was something missing in my life. I wanted to live my life for a purpose. I wanted to live for God, not just to, not just to believe in him, but to live for him. And on August 16th, um, I had just gotten off the phone with my girlfriend, and we were just kind of chatting. And she had asked, you know, um, there was one thing that, you know, she loved everything about me. You know, the little teenage talk. And she said, there's one thing that's missing. You're not a Christian. And it got silent on the phone. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. And then we hung up. Um, I can remember. And I, I got down on my knees. And it wasn't, <laughs> I don't want to say it was, well, this girl needs me to be a Christian, so I need to be a Christian. It was the fact that, you know what, that she said that there's one thing missing. You're not a Christian. And I realized there really is one thing missing in my life. I'm extremely happy, but there, I'm not living for God. There was one thing missing in my life. And I hit the, I hit the floor right there in my bedroom August 16th, and I can remember, and just and wept. Hmm. And uh, eight hours straight from that day on, eight hours at night, I, I did not put the Bible down. I mean, it was just uh, it, the words came to life for me hmm. and I've been living for Christ. And it was it was tough because I was 15. I had to go back to my friends that, you know, in high school and they had to see that in me. And I had to say, you know, I had to make choices and it was really tough. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, I'm so glad that I made that that choice. Then. That's good. That's great. So Jacob's a public school teacher and. Wanted to ask him, how does faith apply to that situation? How do you feel motivated? What are action-oriented things that you're able to do in the public school place to work your faith out into action there? I have to apply my faith every day in my, in my job because being a middle school teacher, and especially math, I'm not the most popular teacher in the school <laughs> being a math teacher. But, um, you know, it, it's really tough, and I can see it in the kids that I, that I teach every single day. It's, that's such, such a tough age for them, you know, 12, 13 years old. Because they're really trying to find their identity. And um, it, sometimes I feel like I'm walking on eggshells because I just want to, I, I want to just approach them and tell them, hey, you know, you know, and I want to witness to them. I want to talk with them. But, of course, you know, there's kind of, I'm kind of, I have to be held, you know, kind of keep it down, you know, 
But, um, you know, I have opportunities. Um, I've led our FCA group at our school, and I've been able to share my faith with other kids and stuff. But, you know, it gives me an opportunity to talk to the kids and encourage them that, you know, it's really hard right now. But I want to encourage you just to be that the light in, those dark, in the darkness of those halls because it, in that middle school, I mean, that's exactly what they need. They need, some, they need these kids to step up and live for God and just to be, you know, be an example to the, to the kids around them, much like I tried to be when I was in high school. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks. thanks. Thank Appreciate you. you sharing your life. So we're going to talk about story today, the fact that uh, we can play a part in others' story. And one reflection off of what Jacob shared that was unique to me when I heard that in a hallway in my house, kind of his background and what happened in his life, is I worked for the organization called Athletes in Action. And I remember a really tall kid coming to our camps that we would do at the Countryside Y up here in Lebanon. That was his brother. And how his brother was there and being influenced and then... I had a part in writing curriculum and going on trips and being a camp counselor for these trips both here and then the ones we would do to send college students internationally. And so indirectly, I've got a part in that story. Not because of great guy I am, but just because I wanted to be faithful in the job I was at. There's a connection to Casey Shaw, his brother, six foot ten kid that went to Toledo, that played in the NBA. That's well and good, but the better part is he influenced his brother. And his brother sat here today and told a story of commitment to Christ. That's the type of stuff that hopefully you'll have in the backdrop of your mind today as we talk about a biblical figure who was very motivated to play a part in the story of the people he belonged to in his community. His name is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an Old Testament figure. And we're going to find out today that he was a man that worked for the government that became a building contractor, and then went to being a governor over a city. So he had three different jobs in the context of the biblical story. He was like you and I. He had a workplace environment. And yet he didn't just work. He had a mindset to try to serve God within those workplace environments. And he played a part in the story of other people's life. And we want to look at how did he do that. And it's a simple outline this morning that we're going to go through. He he prayed. He prepared and he persevered. And I want to tell you the story and and let it reflect on some of the modern day lives that we lived and see if there's also applications that we might have. So the background to Nehemiah, you need to understand, Old Testament figure. If you go back about a thousand years B.C., you're in the era of David and Solomon. These great names of the Bible, these people that led a nation called Israel that was very successful, very blessed of God. But then they stopped following God with a whole heart and started to attend to other interests and other gods. And it led downward, downward to the point where other nations were taking them over. And that's kind of where we enter the story here. In the 8th century B.C., they were taking over Israel, one part of the chosen people, ten tribes, by Assyria and taken into captivity. There were two Tribes under Judah, also part of God's chosen people, that were taken in captivity a little later by the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians then lost out to a group called the Persians. And the Persians were a different type of power. 
their leadership, their king thought it best to prevent rebellion and overhaul by the people that are under their captivity to allow them to have some freedoms. And so one of the freedoms they allowed the chosen people of God to have while in captivity to them, the Persians, was to let them go back to their homeland and to practice some of their religious rituals and practices. And so that's where we find Nehemiah. Nehemiah has a job under the Persian king named Artaxerxes. And there is a friendliness and openness in the environment with these captive people. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. We're in about 440 B.C. now. And I want to read to you here out of chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. You see, Nehemiah, before I read it, had just had friends come back from that destroyed, decrepit city where people were living, Jerusalem. He was in a city called Susa. And the people, when he asked, how are my people doing there, they said, they're not doing well. They're disgraced and they're troubled. And the city is in ruins. And that really got to Nehemiah. Because what he pictured was his people, God's chosen people, his heritage was very possibly going to be just assimilated, assimilated into the other nations. Not having a special calling, a special place designed by God for them to live and play out their lives to the glory of God. And so here's how he responds. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. You see, there's some key words here. Nehemiah was burdened. It says he, he had to sit down. He, he wept and he mourned and he fasted. He had a very emotional reaction to the news about his countrymen. And that's how prayer should be. You know, Pastor Jeff, I've been around here for about 20 years now. And one of the things among many that you kind of find out about the guy that he repeats a number of times through sermons and exhortations. There's one I'm particularly fond of. You've probably heard it if you've been here for a while, but he'll talk about prayer in this way. When there's an issue in the church or something that we want to believe God for or hoping for, he'll say, when you pray, pray like it's your situation, like it's your spouse, like it's your child. And then you'll really feel the emotion and the burden of praying as you should to God. I've always liked that. I've tried to practice that in my life because that's so much different than just taking a name on a list and mumbling something to God and saying, there, I pray. We can be guilty of that sometimes. It means so much more when if I take that person whose marriage is in shambles and really hurting and I considered, well, what if that was mine with my wife? Oh, I, I pray with a different burden and concern. And so that's how Nehemiah was praying, praying. He was passionate. He was hurt. He was burdened. His people were in great trouble and disgrace, his friends had said. Now, you may wonder, okay, good story. It's in the Bible. But frankly, in 21st century America, the people I'm around in my neighborhood and at work, they don't seem all that troubled and disgraced. There doesn't seem to be all that much 
right up in their face hurt and pressure and difficulty. I mean, they hit that garage door opener and drive in and they hit it in the next morning and come out. I don't, I don't see much trouble or difficulty. Uh, people at work, we talk about work stuff and sports and weather and hums along. And I know that's not exactly how it all feels, but we sometimes miss the trouble and the disgrace that people are really in because they really are. They really are. The people we're around, they don't know that God's presence and power and peace is available to them. Many don't know that. They don't know that they are under a weight of sin, that there's only one Savior that can take them out of and give them an eternal destiny with God. They're completely unaware. Some don't know that there's a purpose and a destiny they can have with God. And they're missing out. I, I, I can't even say they're completely unaware because I believe God is always trying to impress upon people's heart their need for him. But they don't know that they could have what God or what Jeff told us about a couple weeks ago, that they could be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, having a privileged place as a child of God in his kingdom. Yeah, they're, they're in trouble. They're in disgrace in your workplace and in mine. He was burdened because he understood that. Now, Nehemiah was also bold in verse five of chapter one. Remember what it said there. It says he said, "O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. Nehemiah, in his prayer, was bold because he remembered who God was and is. That's what those adjectives mean. That he's the God of heaven, that he is, as we sang this morning, he's holy. Holy means moral purity, but it also means set apart from everything else. That's what God is. He's set apart from everything else. He stands alone. He's in heaven. He's the maker of heaven. He's great. He's awesome. He's promise keeping. He works from love. Nehemiah could be bold with God because he knew who he was. There's an author who struck me with something he said in a book I read some time ago. I believe it wholeheartedly. His name's A.W. Tozer. He said this, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now think about that. What comes into your or my mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a heavy statement, but I agree with it. Because our perceptions, our beliefs, our actions, what we do out of a life of faith all ties to what we really believe about God. If you don't really believe he's good, you're not going to entrust him with some things in your heart and in your life. You're not. If you don't think he's really trustworthy, you're going to hold back some things you're not willing to give to God. If you don't believe that he's in complete control and powerful over all things, the level of anxiety and worry that will come to you in life will not be able to be combated in the same way. Nehemiah tied into understanding who God was that allowed him to be bold in his prayer. Listen to what he says in verse 11 of chapter 1. He's still praying. 
six verses later, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Give your servant success. See, that's very specific. His desire is clearly said to God. When? Today. Success today. He's bold to ask God for action now by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He's specific about who he's talking about. It's not like God doesn't know. But Nehemiah knows that he can boldly go to God with exactly what's on his heart and ask God to move in that moment, in that place. My wife is a part of the Beth Moore Studies, a gal that teaches very effectively, and a lot of the gals are involved in video series studies with her. And I I saw her studying and previewing one this week. And Beth Moore was teaching about how God loves it when we're bold. When we come to him with big requests, major things that he's capable of doing. Not that we manipulated him into always doing what we want because he knows best. And he knows his will for our lives in the world. But he does not mind us asking out of a pure heart for big things. And she quoted a verse out of Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 17 that says this. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. The picture is of Jeremiah, who was in a lot of difficulty as a prophet of God. In a situation, again, where he had to back up from his circumstance and say, Ah, it's almost like that pleasurable moment of, okay, I got perspective here. You're the sovereign Lord, the one who is powerful and controlling over all things, big things in the minute details of my life. I can talk to you because nothing that I would ask could be too difficult for you. See, that's the type of stuff that will allow us to have bold prayers to God if we have that right view. That we can be very specific about place, desire, time, and person in our prayers. And so what I'd ask you to do, if you get bored in this sermon here in the next 20 minutes, or if you're going home today and you've got some reflective moments, why don't you think about where God would be moving you to be bold in a prayer about somebody that you care about, about a specific thing that you would like to see happen in their life, and in a time frame whereby you'd like to see it happen. Test it. Go to God in that way. Now, I'm not up here that can say, I guarantee it will happen, because I can't. But I can guarantee you God will hear and guarantee you that God will take pleasure in that bold prayer, remembering who he is. Secondly, Nehemiah prepared. Now, these aren't linear things. You don't pray, then you prepare, then you persevere. It's it's all rolled together. So don't take that impression as I walk through a, a sequence outline here. But as he prepares... We got this little phrase at the end of the last verse I read you. It says, I was cupbearer to the king. It's almost out of place. He's burdened. He's got this big, long prayer that's very passionate. And then the last sentence, I was cupbearer to the king. Well, what he's telling us is, this is my job. This is my place of influence. 
A cupbearer in that time was kind of like a butler for the highest person in the land, the king. And so it had a, a high official type of role. And basically what he would do is that he would take the wine from the vase and before pouring it into the glass that would be presented to the king, he would pour some out into his left hand and lap it up. Now, was he tasting it to see if it was taste worthy of the king? Eh, maybe in part. But the main reason he was doing it was to find out if it had been poisoned in any way. And his role was to take the hit so the king wouldn't if somebody had poisoned that wine. He would die. The king would not die. That was his primary role. And the role gave him a lot of contact, frequent access to the king. There was a relationship that would be built when you're serving these meals every day over extended time. And so he had a relationship. And so his preparation in part was that he had built relationship with the guy who could make decisions, the king of the land. And he probably had had good character. He was trustworthy. He was dedicated. And he was positive. That's part of our first preparation in our own workplace. That we would be people that are positive, that are of good character, that are trustworthy, that we earn the right to have influence in our company or in our business or in our school or in our neighborhood because of how we live. But he goes on to talk more about his preparation. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, it reads this way. Now, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. So let's break this down a little bit. It says it's the month of Nisan. Well, you and I say, what in the world's that? We don't know what a month of Nisan is. Well, what it is, is it's another month that's three or four months past when he was originally burdened with the report that came back from the friends. So I don't know what he did in this three or four months. The scripture doesn't tell us, but I can imagine a little bit. In that three or four months time, he'd been praying more. It was a part of his continuing preparation, praying for the right time, the right moment, the right situation where he could talk to the king about his burden, his prayer, what he wanted to do in his workplace, in his community. And so for whatever reason, now was the time. Whatever preparations he did in those four months, and I think we'll get some hints at some other ones, but now was the time. Four months later. And the king says to him, what do you want? And it says, he doesn't just immediately tell him what he wants. It says that he prays. What a great picture of the fact that you and I don't just go pray on Sunday or pray before we go to work or pray in the car before you hit the office. You can pray anytime, anywhere, all the time. Nehemiah did it under his breath. Right there in the situation. 
right at the climax of all that he'd been asking for. The king says, what do you want? Before he answers, he says, oh, Lord, how do I ask him this? What I, how do I articulate what it is I really want? Is this the right time, Lord? I think these are the things he said in secret under his breath right in that situation. He was still praying. He was practicing the presence of God. And if you go on to read the story in these early chapters of Nehemiah, he is also prepared by when the king says, I will let you go. He asks for further things. He asks for a reference letter so that he doesn't get in trouble with other authorities in the land that's a thousand miles away. Literally a thousand miles away. He asks for supplies and timber to be able to use to rebuild the city. The city wall that's in shambles and causes the city to be in disgrace and lack of protection. He also asks for security detail. People that could go with him that if he ran into trouble would be under the king's authority and offer help and protection. He had a plan in mind for how it was he was going to change the circumstance and the story of his people. When he gets there, he also gets in touch with reality in Jerusalem. He, he takes time to sense the mood of the people and to inspect the walls and the deterioration and the breakdown. And he also tells the story of what God had done up to that point to his people. I was released by the king. I'm here. I've got supplies. I've got security. We're going to do this thing. He's well prepared. So let's make applications. To our own lives. I've got a chart here I want to show to you that's a little difficult to read on the screen, but I'll tell you what's on it. This comes out of our affiliation with the local ministry that you've heard about here before at work on purpose. It's called a care chart, creative approach to restoring engagement. It's a grid on the top that you can't read across horizontally. It says group or person. So it tries to get us to think about a, a person or a group in our lives. On the vertical scale, there's five categories, and I want to describe these to you and talk about them in a way that maybe connects with our real life. These words are bless, fellowship, minister, proclaim, and disciple. Bless. What's bless mean? Well, bless basically means kindness, kindness, favor to somebody else. So let's imagine for a minute you're a mom. You're a mom. That's a workplace. And as a mom, maybe traditionally in the Christmas holiday season, you're uh, one who bakes plates of goodies and you give them as an act of kindness to family and friends. And you've got a list that you pull out every year and you count them up and that many and you prepare that many plates. And it's hard work, but it's very satisfying to say that you care and love other people. Well, maybe this year to be a blessing to show kindness, to enter a different community, to be a part of maybe somebody else's story, you say, I'm going to do two extra plates. And I'm going to take them to that neighbor that lives behind me and that neighbor that lives two doors down that I really don't know that well. A wave sometimes when I'm driving out of the cul-de-sac or a, a hello at the driveway picking up the mail, but I don't know. I'm going to take the first step and just... Do nothing other than take them a plate of cookies and see what God might do with that. That's blessing out of your, your role in a people. Fellowship. Fellowship. Well, fellowship, how might that look? Well, let's say you're a student. Fellowship just means relationship building. 
So you're a student in the high school and you're on a sports team and you eat lunch every day in the lunchroom. Well, how could God maybe move you to be a part of somebody's story? Well, maybe what he'd have you do is have you think about breaking out of your in-group, only group, exclusive group sometimes and sit with that person on the bus that maybe doesn't get as much playing time or doesn't have the same group of friends and just have a chat with them for 15 minutes going to the competition. Or maybe getting your two or three friends at the lunch table to agree to, hey, let's walk over and meet those other two or three that sit at the other end of the table and just talk, introduce ourselves, find out what they're about. And I know as a high school student, that would be rather awkward and challenging as you would think about that. But we just read earlier, God says nothing's too hard for me, nor is it for you if you walk in his spirit and in his power. As an effort to reach out and create a different story in somebody else. That would be fellowship. Or maybe we can look at minister. Minister. Minister means serving. And so serving could look like this. Serving could be, I'm a businessman, and in the cubicle system at my office one day, I hear a guy that I've done some crossover projects with him, but don't really know him beyond coming to work and what he does and what I do. And seems like a nice enough guy, but I hear him on the phone talking to his wife about he's got to make this special trip that week. It's going to be a four-day trip. It's been raining cats and dogs. He's got a broken-down mower he just found out. He's not going to be able to mow the grass, and he's got five acres. Well, as I listen to that and kind of just want to walk by, i got my own problems. I kind of stop and say, well, wait a minute. i got a big tractor with a mower deck, and I've got a trailer. I wonder maybe if I just go back and say, hey, uh, Bob, I just happened to hear on the phone you and some, you know, trying to work out something. You're going on this trip. You've got a broken down mower. Is that right? Yeah. Your wife, she can't take on that big of a lawn and doesn't know the equipment. Hey, you know what? I've got actually a farm quality tractor and mower deck. I can mow it for you this week while you're gone. Would that be all right? See, that's just serving. That's just ministering. That's taking a step into somebody's life that may end up moving them when they get to know you for an opportunity where you can share. And that's what the last two are about, proclaim and disciple. Those mean sharing your life, your life in God, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and maybe mentoring somebody. And so in that situation, maybe you're a a teacher like Jacob and There's a situation at school one day. Maybe you as fellow teachers are in charge of monitoring that lunchroom. And you don't really know each other, but you're assigned to the same place at the same time. And so in that monitoring, there's sometimes some casual conversation. And on this one day, the lady beside you just starts talking out of um, some hurt and pain. She's got a teenage daughter, and that daughter is not making the best choices under what she can observe. And she's concerned, and, and she wants to change it and enter into it, but there's a lot of friction and tension and I live my life, you leave my life alone, mom, and that kind of stuff. And and so she's describing this to you, you you hear her say this. You know, if only I hadn't disappointed and displeased God so much in my life, maybe I could go to him with this. Oh wow. She just brought out the God word. 
And, you know, what she just said is not accurate to how God is. He's not up there valuing or evaluating performances and looking down ready to say, hey, you've done too much wrong. I'm not entering your situation. She's got a false view of God. Well, maybe I could just step into that moment. And so you do. Maybe you say something like, well, gosh, that, that sounds really rough. And, you know, I'm not so sure that God would be the way you think he is. Um, I'd, I'd love to go get a cup of coffee sometime and just hear more about how you how you came to think that God wouldn't want to hear and, and maybe share what I've learned about God in my own life. That's all. That's all. Step into that moment because you've prayed and you've prepared beforehand to say, God, use me in these kind of moments. You see, they're all around us. They really are. It's just a matter of whether we're hearing and watching for those opportunities and then stepping into those. So we pray, we prepare, then finally we persevere. We persevere. Now you may have a good intention of heart, but the reality is, even as you would go out of here today and think about, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm going to think more about that, that you'll run into barriers and obstacles. Some of those are internal, some of them are external. We'll see how Nehemiah faces them. A little story real quick that I think ties to what Nehemiah experiences. My same daughter that we worked to get good care for this week, when she was little, she was the the type of kid that loved being in front of that video camera. And we couldn't get the other kids on the camera because she would dominate the viewfinder. Hi! Hi, Dad! Hi, Mommy! We've got one film where Mom is pushing her like this with her foot out of the way. Get out of the camera! We want to get some of the other kids. She loved the show. She loved being in the spotlight. We thought one day this girl's going to be into drama and theater, and, and she was. That's where she made her mark in high school. Loved it. But about the time she was five or six in a school project, we had a night where there was going to be some opportunity to read and share a project. All the kids, a few kids would get up and do a little piece And we thought, oh, she's going to love this. And she was talking about it all week, what she's going to do. She just loves the spotlight, loves being on stage. But she got up there. Mom and dad sitting back here, go, go, honey, go ahead, say it. Nothing. She wouldn't say anything. Awkward silence. Finally, I had to go up there and... Honey, this is, you know what to say. You, this is good. You can do it. And she kind of got through it, but it really, it, it wasn't very good. She didn't step to the plate. And I thought, what in the world? This is everything that she had prepared for. She likes. Here's her moment and doesn't do it. Now, fortunately for her, she got over that after that one instance and was able to play out a gift that she had. But it's kind of like what Nehemiah faced here. Read it here with me. It says that, after the king asked him, what do you want? says he was very much afraid. Very much afraid. Now, he had prayed for this. He had prepared for this. The king's asking him, what do you want? And he says, I was very much afraid. It's like you and I. We could be led into these situations in environments where people, we can step into their stories and have a change. And we get right there and we think, oh. Well, maybe it's not the right time. They're, they're not going to want to hear me say this question. 
or they've probably got to get along. It's not time to start a conversation. I'll, I'll do it another time. Uh, they're they're going to be defensive. If I mention doing something for them or even say the word God, I'll probably get a reaction. See, you, you talk out of fear. All this internal barrier and obstacle starts cropping right up, right? However, the great thing about Nehemiah, though, is in that verse... Verse 3 of chapter 3 starts with a great word, but. I was very much afraid, but. The but was his faith. He got through it. He went ahead. Stepped through his prayer and preparation into the reality of what he wanted to have happen. And that's what you and I need to do. We need to do what George Patton said. He said, courage is fear holding on a minute longer. I think Nehemiah held on a minute longer and went ahead with what God had prepared him to do. The external obstacles, yeah, Nehemiah faced them too. Chapter 2, verse 9, or verse 10, it says that these guys, Sambalat and Tobiah, officials heard about this. They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Later in verse 19, same guys says that when they heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? We have the same thing in our environments. There are really people, not just false caricatures, but real people that won't like us bringing God into the workplace, bringing our faith into the dimension of conversation. They won't like it. Some will not like it because it's, it's awkward to them. It doesn't fit their personal comfort zone. Some will have an agenda about it. It messes up the the political side of what's going on at the office or at the business to bring this God factor thing in. Or so many people are like what Jess described the last couple weeks. They think that there's a sacred and a sacred, sacred and a secular. And so you keep that at your church or in your house. You don't need to bring it here. Don't thump me with the Bible. Don't preach at me, even when you haven't said anything other than a blessing or a kindness or an inquiry. Those are barriers and obstacles that are very real to us. But I think we can be like Nehemiah. What did he do? Well, it says in verse 20, it says, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Now, you may not say that verbally to somebody that's an opponent to you in regard to your faith playing out at work. But you certainly can remember it and think it. It's exactly what Jeff taught us not too long ago in terms of us needing to remember who we are. That's what Nehemiah does to him. He says, you know, I remember who I am. I, I speak with the God of heaven. And, and he's working with me to have success. That's what he does. He brings success and effectiveness and fulfillment to his people. That's what he does. And not only do I know who he is and what he does, but I know who I am in him. See, I'm, I'm a holy nation. I am a royal priesthood. I am a person belonging to God. And you're not. You that defy God. You that stand in opposition for him. Now, I'm not saying we want them to stay in those places. But for people that are enemies of God, you do not have to shrink back and fear them in that workplace, in those relationships, if you remember who God is, what he does, and who you are in him. I want to close with 
a video. It's a couple minutes long. It's put out by Chick-fil-A for their employees to help the employees remember that as a part of a company that wants to be a part of changing the stories of real people that enter Chick-fil-A restaurants, that they have a part in it. It's a very moving video for me. I hope you'll find it to be the same. Everybody has a story if you and I bothered to read it. And we've got the good news. We have the opportunity to bless, to be a friend, to move somebody along in a better understanding of the great God, who he is in his love. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be reminded that every day in the places where we live, families, neighborhoods, workplaces, that we have a privileged opportunity to be your ambassadors, your agents of a good message, of good news. Help us to be people that pray for it, that prepare for it, that persevere in situations where it doesn't seem like we're going to get there or the person doesn't want to receive it. Help us to see you as that powerful, almighty God that in your time and in your way, You want to use us and help us to be available to be used, to not step back in fear, but to move forward in faith. We ask it through your son. Amen. Have a great day.